to promote our status, to promote our position, to promote our accomplishments, to promote our spirituality with other Christians, it is the same temptation that Jesus experienced. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part three of a six-part series titled Power Over Temptation. Friend, have you ever wondered what life would be like if Adam and Eve had not sinned in the Garden of Eden? Think about that for a minute. Adam was in a garden with everything he could possibly need, with only one thing prohibited, and yet he still fell into sin to the detriment of all of humanity from that moment onward. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, referred to in Scripture as the second Adam, was in a wilderness for 40 days without food and did not succumb to the temptations of Satan. Tom will continue with the second temptation of Jesus as recorded in Matthew chapter 4. You'll discover the remarkable work of Jesus as he rebuffed the devil's offer of power and prestige on earth. Keep all that in mind as we join Tom right now on The Word Unleashed. In a recent business magazine, there was an article entitled, The Executive's Guide to Self-Promotion. The reporter defines self-promotion as, quote, the act of gaining interest and attention of others and over time earning their respect and trust. She had a number of helpful tips for self-promotion. Here are a couple of them. She said, volunteer for visible assignments at work. That'll get you noticed. That'll promote yourself. She said, and make sure that you show your progress to others. Achieving or exceeding goals is great, but you've got to communicate your successes and ensure that others notice your accomplishments. A third piece of advice that uh, this author had was, be assertive, voice ideas and opinions in a way to attract positive attention to yourself. The person who posted this summary of the article online finished comments with these words, sometimes I forget to promote something I've done, assuming it won't go unnoticed. But in truth, the only way that that will happen is if I share its success. You are your best advocate. That is symptomatic of the times in which we live. If you're going to get promoted, you're going to have to promote yourself. Be in to advancing and promoting yourself. The truth is, we don't need any tips on self-promotion. It's part of the fallen human condition, and it's a constant source of temptation for us as Christians. And during his earthly life, our Lord was tempted to pursue his own personal glory separate from the glory of God. We'll see how he responded and learn how we too ought to respond when the temptation to self-promotion and the pursuit of personal glory comes our way. Just to remind you uh, a couple of brief things from our last study to bring you up to speed. One summary slide, the, the progression of temptation, we said all sins spring from temptation. We sin because we're tempted. All temptations, for us now we're talking about, not Christ, all temptations spring from sinful cravings in our heart. James 
puts it this way in James 1.14, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And the word lust simply means to crave something, to want something badly. It's not primarily a sexual word. It's a word that means to crave what you do not have. That's the source of temptations. It comes from within. For us, the ultimate source of all temptation and sin comes from the cravings that are in our flesh, the Bible calls it, our unredeemed humanness. So out of that part of us that's unredeemed flow these cravings, and our temptations come from those cravings wanting to be satisfied, and our sins ultimately result from that as well. Thirdly, all sinful cravings ultimately spring from three root sinful cravings. So if you were to catalog for me all of those things that you end up craving that are sort of a recurrent theme in your life, things you want more than you want God, ultimately I could draw a line between all of those back to these three root cravings. They are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those are found in 1 John 2, and we looked at that. In 1 John 2, verse 15 and 16, John says, these things comprise all that is in the world, all that's in the world system opposed to God. In some way, these three are comprehensive and all-inclusive. They are the root sinful cravings. And the fourth sort of progression of temptation is those three root temptations spring from ultimately three normal God-given human desires. It's at this fourth level that Jesus was tempted. He did not have within himself sinful cravings that cried out to be satisfied. Instead, he had normal God-given desires just as we do And that's where the source of temptation came. As we saw with the first temptation, the temptation to turn the breads into stone, it was a temptation to satisfy the normal God-given appetite for food in a way that was contrary to the will of God. So it was out of the natural desires, the normal, non-sinful human desires that the devil used in Christ to bring temptation his way. The difference is for us, this is where it's different, for us, our fallenness seizes on these three God-given desires and perverts them and warps them and turns them into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Every temptation, every kind of temptation we face ultimately springs from one of these three root temptations. And that's why it's interesting that Jesus' temptations parallel these three. For him, it was not the craving of the flesh, the craving of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. For him, it was the natural God-given desires that lie below that at level four here in my little progression. Now, remember that Jesus' temptations are recorded for two reasons. Very important you remember this. Reason number one, They're there to demonstrate Jesus' own power over temptation. That is the most important thing. He showed by head-to-head combat with the devil that he would not give in to sin. He did what the first Adam could not do. The first Adam was in a garden with everything he needed and only one thing prohibited, and he fell. The second Adam, as the Scripture calls Christ, was in a wilderness 
without food that he needed for 40 days, without all of the needs of life being met, and he did not succumb in head-to-head competition with the devil. So it's to demonstrate Jesus' power over temptation. It's also, these temptations are recorded to provide us with a pattern for overcoming temptation in our own lives. This is a secondary reason, but a very important one as well. Both Matthew and Luke record three temptations. Those temptations are the climax of the temptations that come at the end of the 40 days, and they are representative of the temptations that Jesus faced over that 40-day period. We're looking at Matthew's account because Matthew is the one who lists these temptations in chronological order, and Luke does not. Matthew chapter 4. I invite you to turn there with me. The second temptation of Christ is recorded here in Matthew 4 and verses 5 through 7. First of all, I want us to look at the preparation. The preparation, it's found in verse 5. It says, Then the devil took him into the holy city. Clearly the reference here is to the city of Jerusalem for a couple of reasons. One, because that's the name given to Jerusalem in other places in Scripture. Even in Matthew's Gospel, over in chapter 27, he refers to Jerusalem as the holy city. And also because... He takes him to the temple, and Jerusalem was the only city where the temple stood. So he takes him to Jerusalem, and he has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, there's some discussion here about what happened. Did Jesus actually go with the devil physically into Jerusalem, or was this like a vision? Well, remember that Jesus has been in the wilderness of Judea, near the Jordan where he was baptized, down near the Dead Sea, He's probably, for those 40 days, somewhere between 10 and 40 miles from Jerusalem for those 40 days following his baptism. And these three climactic temptations come at the very end of that 40-day period. So, did he go or didn't he go? Well, we can't be sure. The key issue, however, is that either way, the temptation was very real to Christ. If Jesus and Satan actually went into the city, as it appears that they did, and most commentators would agree with that, but even some I respect would not, uh, it would appear that they got there the normal way, and that is by walking. The Greek word here for took, the, the devil took him, is the same word Matthew uses for Joseph and Mary, or excuse me, for Joseph taking Mary and Jesus into Egypt, and for Jesus taking the disciples with him to the high mountain for the transfiguration. It simply means to take with or to take along with. And so it appears, if we take the text at face value, that Jesus and the devil walk into the city of Jerusalem from the wilderness where he has been. Matthew adds, the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand. Literally, the text says, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, what is this pinnacle of the temple? The English word pinnacle comes from a Latin word which means little wing. And that is exactly what the Greek word means, a little wing of the temple. We can't be certain what this place was, but there is general agreement. And I'm going to show you the place where it most likely was. This morning, you remember that I explained how Herod built that large artificial platform over Mount Moriah? 
And on that 36-acre platform or mount, he built the temple. Here is a model. This is in the city of Jerusalem. It is a, an archaeologically correct model of the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' time. This is, we are, the viewpoint here is standing on the Mount of Olives on the east side of the city, looking out west toward the temple. You can see here this temple mount is, it's like a large box. It begins here. This is the retaining wall I was describing this morning, moving all along here. This is, this whole area is called the temple mount. Now, you have to adjust your mind because when you look at that, it looks like a very small area. Remember, that surface, that top flat surface on which those buildings appear is 36 acres. It holds hundreds of thousands of people. So you have to keep that scale in your mind. The large building in the center is the temple proper. That is where the holy place and the holy of holies would have existed. Today, the the Dome of the Rock is there, the Muslim shrine. It, would have, it is, by the way, about half the size of what the temple would have been. So that gives you some idea of the scale that we're talking about. So that's from the east looking across. Let me give you a view from the south. I gave you that just so you can orient yourself. Now we're standing on the south side of the Temple Mount. You can still see the temple right here. We were looking at it from the east over here before. Now we're looking from the south up at that same temple mount. Here's the retaining wall, and here is the temple courts all up here, that large, flat, 36-acre spot. Now, on the east side of the temple mount was the Mount of Olives. That's where we were just looking from. This valley that runs between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount is called the Kidron Valley, and you see it here pictured on the valley. That meant that the eastern wall of the Temple Mount was above the Kidron Valley, and on top of the platform, on that southeastern corner of the Temple Mount, stood what were called the Royal Porticos. Those are the red top buildings that you see there. That was the corner that is typically known as the pinnacle, right where the red arrow is pointing. Now again, you have to remember the scale. It's hard to glance at this and get some idea of what the scale is. But from the top of the building there where the arrow points down to the floor of the Kidron Valley below is a drop of some 450 feet or 150 yards if you're standing where that red arrow is pointing looking down was huge. Josephus, the first century historian, describes it like this. He says, the height of the portico standing over it was so very great that if anyone looked down from its rooftop, combining the two elevations, he would become dizzy and his vision would be unable to reach the end of so measureless a depth. Imagine someone in the first century, never having been in a skyscraper, looking down a building that dropped 150 yards. That would trouble some of you today. As uh, one of our family members said, I'm not afraid of heights, I'm afraid of falling. And that'll do it to you. Now, it was from that corner, the pinnacle, that tradition says James, the brother of Christ, was thrown to his death. But here's the point I want you to get. 
It was the highest and most visible place in the ancient city of Jerusalem. Apart from the top of the temple proper itself, there was nowhere you could go and be more visible, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Matthew Henry, in describing this in his old commentary, says how subtle the devil was in the choice of a place for his temptations, intending to solicit Christ to an ostentation or show of his own power and a vainglorious presumption upon God's providence. He fixes him on a public place in Jerusalem, a populous city, and in the temple, one of the wonders of the world, continually gazed upon with admiration by somebody. There he might make himself remarkable. He might be taken notice of by everybody and prove himself the Son of God, not as he was urged in the former temptation in the obscurities of a wilderness, but before multitudes upon the most imminent stage of action. That gives you some idea of what's happening here in the preparation. That moves us to the second point in this text in verse 6, and that is the temptation itself. That was the preparation. Now comes the temptation. Verse 6 says, And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. From that high pinnacle, 450 feet above the Kidron Valley, Satan lays out the temptation. Again, he begins with those words, if you are the Son of God. Now, as we noted last time, for each of the temptations, Matthew uses a conditional construction in the Greek language that assumes the condition is true. He's not saying, come on, I know you're not the Son of God, prove it to me. Instead, the speaker may believe this or may not believe it, the construction doesn't tell us, but he's assuming it's true. So we could translate Satan's words something like this. If you are the Son of God, and I assume that's true, throw yourself down. Now, why would Christ want to do that? Satan explains why. He quotes two verses from Psalm 91. He says, it's written, God will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, this second temptation shows just how crafty Satan really is. Remember Jesus' response to the first temptation? In responding to the first temptation, he quoted Scripture. So what does Satan do? In the second temptation, he quotes Scripture to tempt Jesus to sin. Also, in Jesus' response to the first temptation, he said, I'm not going to turn these stones into bread because, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, and he says, because I trust God. He will take care of me. And so Satan springs from that. Not only does he use the Bible, but he plays on Jesus' trust in God. He says, okay, so you trust God? Well, here's an opportunity to prove it. Satan is saying that if Jesus is the real Messiah, then the smallest injury is not possible. The angels won't even let him stub the toes that are exposed by his sandals. What I want you to see here, and this is really amazing if you think about it, the devil used Scripture to tempt the Son of God. He misinterpreted it. He misapplied it. But if he did that with Christ, guess what? He'll do the same thing with you and with me. 
Again, Matthew Henry says, is Satan so well-versed in Scripture as to be able to quote it so readily? It seems he is. Note, it is possible for a man to have his head full of Scripture and his mouth full of Scripture while his heart is full of enmity to God and all goodness. When I was working, in, when I was in seminary, college and seminary, I've told you before, I would go out in the, on Saturday nights and preach in the prisons, a prison nearby. And I'll never uh, get over the fact that there was a man there in prison for murdering his mother-in-law. He wanted to kill his wife, but he couldn't find her, so she was gone, so he just took the first one he came to, killed his mother-in-law. He was in prison for that, for life, and he knew more Bible than most Christians I've ever met. The devil does too. This remains one of Satan's most effective tools. He uses Scripture. He convinces people to use the Scripture to their own advantage on many occasions. I have heard hurting spouses in difficult marriages twist and distort the passages that speak of legitimate biblical grounds for divorce when they don't have them. They distort and twist them all in an effort to justify their unbiblical decisions. Recently, my wife and I were visiting with some family and in one of the churches that we knew about in that area, there was someone who had been disciplined out of the church for disciplinable offenses, church discipline. And they distributed in the church they had been disciplined out of a little card that had their names on it and had the verse that says, my conscience is clear, there's nothing between me and God. Using Scripture to justify the sin that they had been disciplined out of the church for. So, what is this, this temptation all about? Satan uses Scripture, but what exactly is he tempting, to Jesus, tempting Jesus to do? Listen carefully. This temptation is not about finding a high place and urging Jesus to jump to see if God would rescue him. There are some commentators I read who say, you know that natural urge that we all have when we stand in a high place? You think, I wonder what it would be like to jump? That's what Jesus was experiencing. That's ridiculous. Okay? That's not at all what's going on here. During our trip to Israel, we stopped in a desolate spot in the Judean wilderness where Jesus' temptations occurred, where he was fasting for 40 days and tempted. This is what it looks like. You see those little green specks down there in the wadi, in the dry riverbed. Those are huge trees. That gives you some scale of how large these mountains were. And there were precipices and cliffs Throughout that area where Jesus was tempted, there were dozens of places that were high places. If Satan didn't take Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem because he was looking for a high place, which he wasn't because there were plenty here, then there must be more involved. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part three of his series, power over temptation. Tom will bring you part four on our next program. Join us then, won't you? But Tom, you close by mentioning the nature of the second temptation of Christ. What does that look like in today's world? And how should believers be aware of similar temptations in their own lives? This temptation to promote our own personal glory at the expense of God's glory is everywhere. It's in our hearts. It's part of life in a fallen world. And yet I think if you look at it, the form this temptation takes today may be at its most 
overt and straightforward form has to be in the social media world. There, people, including believers, engage in a world that is literally founded on, built on being seen, being promoted, and your own personal accomplishments. Of course, not all of social media is evil or wrong, but it is a tool that the enemy has used in amazing ways to tempt believers. Can I just encourage you, friend, to be careful. Be aware of our heart's desire for fame and power and position and prestige for personal glory at the expense of God's glory. Beware. Be careful. Satan didn't stop this temptation in the first century. It's alive and well today. Thanks, Tom. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.